Welcome back to the law. I'm DK Williams and this is episode 36, DC versus Heller. It's a 2008 Supreme Court case where the US Supreme Court said, five to four decision, that the right protected by the Second Amendment, which is to keep and bear arms, and that that right shall not be infringed by government, was an individual right and not tied to membership in any militia. So why does the Second Amendment mention the militia then? What's up with that? We'll tell you what the Supreme Court said. As always, The Law with D.K. Williams is brought to you by the Launchpad Media Network, always launching ideas in your direction. Find us at thelaunchpadmedia.com. And you can follow me on social media, Twitter, at BlueCarp, and on Facebook.com slash BlueCarp. I'd love to hear from you. And please check out the Facebook page for this podcast. It's The Law with D.K. Williams. And if you'd like to help keep this podcast going, if you enjoy and appreciate it, you can donate at paypal.me slash the law dk williams there's a link in the show notes and wherever you're listening like comment subscribe share if you're so inclined we'd love to get the extra publicity and remember as i try to remind everybody this every time but i know i don't always do it read the cases so i link to them for you having an opinion about a case you haven't read is like having an opinion on a restaurant at which you've never eaten and it's obvious that most tv and radio commentators especially politicians have not read the cases they're bitching about because if they had read them, they'd know their complaints are wrong. And I like discussing these cases here with you on the podcast, not so you'll just take my opinion for it, but so you'll be inspired or be interested in reading the actual case. All right, the name participants in this case, so it's D.C. versus Heller. D.C. is the District of Columbia, the federally controlled district wherein the United States federal capital is located. They had a very restrictive firearm law that was at issue in this Supreme Court case, and we'll go over that. The law was tossed out as unconstitutional by the Supreme Court in that 5-4 to four majority. Now, Heller is Dick Anthony Heller, and he's listed as Dick, not Richard. I found that interesting. I don't know. That's how it's listed. He was, and he may still be, a D.C. special police officer authorized to carry a handgun while on duty at the Federal Judicial Center. So where he was working, apparently. He applied for registration for a handgun that he wished to keep at home, but the District of Columbia refused. He then filed a lawsuit, Federal District Court, seeking on Second Amendment grounds to keep the city from enforcing its law, which include a requirement that it would be illegal to carry a firearm in your own home without a license, and that it had to be a trigger lock on the firearm in your house. So the district court dismissed Officer Heller's complaint. The Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia reversed the district court, and the Supreme Court agreed to hear the case, and that's how we got here. Heller is a great plaintiff for this case because he's a police officer, right? And this is one of those cases where an advocacy group found a plaintiff that would be willing to be the face of the cause. That happens all the time. There's nothing wrong with it. You want a good sympathetic plaintiff, and they got one here. And remember, since the defendant in this case, well, the, the law enforcement entity is the District of Columbia. It's federal jurisdiction. So this case only applies to the federal government. Whether or not it would apply to the states and is incorporated via the 14th Amendment is not addressed in this case. D.C. v. Heller doesn't talk about that. That was addressed two years later in 2010 in McDonald versus Chicago. And that case did incorporate the Second Amendment and apply it to the states. And we'll discuss that next week. But first, Supreme Court made a decision that the Second Amendment applied to individuals. It is an individual right, and it's not dependent upon being in a militia or some type of government military organization. So let's go over the roster of this 
tally who was on which side of it. I like to go through this. I like to mention and point out what I see to be a notable lack of diversity when it comes to the education of the justices in modern times. In this case was 11 years ago. It was in 2008. The Supreme Court is almost always comprised of Ivy League law school graduate elites. Doesn't matter if they're black, white, gay, straight, men, women, progressive, or conservative. They almost all come from that same limited pool. And I don't think that's good. Antonin Scalia, who wrote the majority opinion, he served from 86 to 16. He was appointed by Reagan back in 86. Ivy League elite went to Harvard Law. So joining Scalia in the majority opinion were Chief Justice John Roberts, who was appointed in 2005 by W. Bush and is still on the bench, also an Ivy League elite. He went to Harvard Law and undergrad. Anthony Kennedy, in the majority opinion, he served from 88 until 2018. He had been appointed by Reagan, also Ivy League elite, Harvard Law. Clarence Thomas, who was appointed by H.W. Bush in 1991 and is still on the bench, also an Ivy League elite. Ah, but he did not go to Harvard, so here's some diversity. He went to Yale. The fifth justice in the majority of Samuel Alito, appointed by W. in 2006, also Ivy Legally, also Yale Law School. In the dissent, four dissenting justices. It was two separate dissents that were written, but it's the same four justices that agreed with the dissents. Stephen Breyer wrote one of the dissents. He was appointed by Clinton in 1994. He's still on the bench. He was joined by John Paul Stevens, who was nominated by Ford, a Republican, by the way. He was on the bench from 1975 until 2010. He went to Northwestern Law School. So while that's an elite law school, it's not Ivy League elite. So that's the type of diversity that we currently have or have had recently. David Souter, also in the dissent, the anti-Second Amendment side of it, appointed by H.W. Bush, also a Republican, by the way. He was on the bench from 1990 until 2009. So he was not on the court two years later when that McDonald v. Chicago case was decided. He was replaced, however, by Sonia Sotomayor. So that five to four vote margin did not change. Souter, also Ivy League elite, Harvard Law. Ruth Bader Ginsburg, also in the dissent. And basically what Breyer's dissent says is that contrary to the majority opinion, the Second Amendment only applies within the context of the militia. Breyer also talked about why the court should adopt an interest balancing test to determine when the government interests were sufficiently weighty to justify proposed regulation, in this case, an almost outright ban on handguns. In this case, Breyer said, and the four dissenting members of court said that because this interest balancing, which he advocated, this decision by the D.C. government turns on the type of analysis that the legislature, not the court, is best positioned to make. Therefore, the court should defer to the legislature and uphold the restrictions. We'll get into why that is so horribly and disturbingly wrong. There was a second dissent written by Stevens, joined by the same justice. Also, in essence, says it only applies within the context of a militia and is not an individual right. So we discussed how Heller wanted a firearm, lived in the District of Columbia, and was denied because of the basically de facto ban on owning handguns in the District of Columbia. The majority held, and this is a summary from Oyez, that's O-Y-E-Z, which is linked in the notes as always. So Scalia, writing for the five to four majority, separated the two clauses, the two parts of the Second Amendment. The first clause of the Second Amendment that references the militia is a prefatory clause that does not limit the operative clause of the amendment. The term militia should not be confined to those serving in the military because at the time of the adoption of the Bill of Rights, Really, the Bill of Restrictions, because it doesn't grant you rights, it restricts government. Militia refer to all able-bodied men 
who are capable of being called to serve. The majority said that reading it as limiting the right only to those in a military force run by the government would be to create exactly the type of a state-sponsored force against which the amendment was meant to protect people. The majority cites numerous examples of how that is supported by writing at the time, subsequent scholarship. Therefore, banning the handguns, which is an entire class of arms commonly used for protection, and prohibiting firearms from being kept functional in the home, which the D.C. law did, violates the Second Amendment. They struck down that law. There are a couple of things that come up. They come up quite often in these cases, but let's go over a couple of them again that are applicable here. Natural rights versus government-granted rights. That's the starting place for analysis. If you think the government grants you rights, you're going to come up with a completely different result than if you believe in natural rights, which is what the entire Constitution is built on. The entire foundation of this government is built on. Now, we've gotten so far away from that, it's hard to recognize sometimes. But we have to have a foundation. We have to have a starting point, and that's natural rights. Because if your government grants you rights, if that's where you get your rights, they can take them away. And then they're not rights. Firearm ownership is a natural right. Actually, ownership of anything is. The Bill of Rights, which is really a bill of restrictions, right? Because it doesn't grant you any rights. It restricts the government from doing certain things, including infringing your rights. Bill of Rights restrictions says that the right to own a firearm, keep and bear arms, shall not be infringed. So we know it's an individual right. So the question is, does the constitutional prohibition on Congress from infringing on that right apply to individuals or only within the context of the military? And we talked about that. And next week we'll do McDonald v. Chicago where they address whether or not the prohibition against infringement of that right also applied to the states via the 14th Amendment. And they did, but we'll go into the analysis of that. Scalia and the majority note that the Second Amendment right is not unlimited. And what they mean is the rights protected by the Second Amendment can be infringed in some instances. And they talk about what those are, like owning a sawed-off shotgun or being a felon. They can take you right away, that type of thing. We'll go through that entire list of things. One of those things that can be restricted is laws that forbid the carrying of firearms in sensitive places, such as schools and government buildings, are allowable under the Second Amendment. What they mean is here is that laws forbidding the carrying of firearms by anyone other than government agents can be prohibited because firearms are never forbidden in those places. They're not forbidden to government agents. They're only forbidden to us mere plebeians. And according to Scalia, that's allowed. And the majority. One more important point, there are no enumerated constitutional rights. Even though you will see that phrase frequently, what you have in the Constitution are enumerated limits on the government power, hence the Bill of Restrictions, as it should be called. So Scalia sets the stage in the opinion. He writes, The District of Columbia generally prohibits the possession of handguns. It is a crime to carry an unregistered firearm, and the registration of handguns is prohibited. Let that sink in. Wholly apart from that prohibition, no person may carry a handgun without a license, but the chief of police may issue licenses for one-year periods. The District of Columbia law also requires residents to keep their lawfully owned firearms, such as registered long guns, unloaded and dissembled, or bound by a trigger lock or similar device, unless they're located in a place of business or being used for lawful recreational activities. So if they've got to be unloaded and dissembled, that makes them useless, of course. Scalia goes on. The Second Amendment provides, because you always got to start with what the actual words are that you're talking about, a well-regulated militia. Being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. That's your Second Amendment. He says, in interpreting this text, we are guided by the principle that the Constitution was written to be understood by the voters. 
Its words and phrases were used in their normal and ordinary, as distinguished from their technical meaning, or any technical meaning. That's basically the whole concept of originalism, or textualism, as described by Scalia. He goes on, laying out the, the issues. He says, the two sides in this case have set out very different interpretations of the amendment. Petitioners, that's the District of Columbia, and the dissenting justices believe that it protects only the right to possess and carry a firearm in connection with, with militia service. Respondent, Heller, argues that it protects an individual right to possess a firearm unconnected with the service in a militia and to use that arm for traditionally lawful purposes such as self-defense within the home. And this is an important part of the entire case, of, of the analysis. Scalia says this, The Second Amendment is naturally divided into two parts, its prefatory clause and its operative clause. The prefatory clause does not limit the operative clause, but rather announces a purpose. The amendment could be rephrased, Because a well-regulated militia is necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Remember what it actually says is, A well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear, bear arms shall not be infringed. So the operative clause is the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. That's the operative part. That's the important part. The prefatory part, the preface to the operative part, is the part about a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state. That's the preface. And then the meat of it is the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Scalia says, the first salient feature of the operative clause, the important part, is that it codifies a right of the people. That's in there, right of the people. The unamended constitution, the bulk of it before the Bill of Rights, right? Bill of Restrictions. He points out that the unamended constitution, then the Bill of Rights, uses the phrase right of the people two other times. And all three of these instances unambiguously refer to individual rights, not collective ones. He says that nowhere else in the Constitution does a right attributed to the people refer to anything other than an individual right. The majority goes on. The militia in colonial America consisted of a subset of the people, those who were male, able-bodied, and within a certain age range. Reading the Second Amendment as protecting only the right to keep and bear arms in an organized militia, therefore fits poorly with the operative clause's description of the holder of that right as the people. And that's the basic analysis. And we'll get into some more of the details of that. And y'all have heard sometimes that the Second Amendment only applies to guns that existed at the time the Second Amendment was ratified or something to that effect. You hear that all the time, especially in social media, when any idiot can say something. Well, they made that same argument to the Supreme Court. And they addressed that. Scalia wrote, Some have made the argument, bordering on the frivolous, that only those arms in existence in the 18th century are protected by the Second Amendment. We do not interpret constitutional rights that way. Just as the First Amendment protects modern forms of communications and the Fourth Amendment applies to modern forms of search, the Second Amendment extends to all instruments that constitute bearable arms, even those that were not in existence at the time of the founding. So now you can officially declare that argument as frivolous. Another important nugget, Scalia writes, at the time of the founding, as now, to bear meant to carry. Okay, so now, if you can't carry it, the Second Amendment doesn't prohibit the government from banning those things. So keep that in mind. You can't carry a tank. And that's an important distinction. Bear means carry. So the right to carry shall not be infringed. You can't carry it. They can infringe it. Scalia points out that, quote, other legal sources at, of, at the time, before and, and relatively close to after it was passed, frequently used bear arms in non-military contexts. 
And here's where uh, Justice Scalia at this point tries to be clever and insulting at the same time. And he was pretty good at that. Here Scalia is going to roll with some Alice in Wonderland metaphor in discussing the dissent's treatment of that prefatory clause about the militia with the operative clause that says the right shall not be infringed. Quote, a purposive qualifying phrase that contradicts the word or phrase it modifies is unknown this side of the looking glass. The right to carry arms in the militia for the purpose of killing game is worthy of the Mad Hatter. There you go. That's his Lewis Carroll reference. And he's saying the arguments made by the dissent are worthy of the Mad Hatter. Now, British history is important in this case because the founders, the people that wrote the Constitution and ratified it, were product of the British history that preceded them. They all came from, the majority of them came from Great Britain. And so Scalia addresses a lot of that, and here are some of the highlights of it. He wrote, in the majority opinion, in a 1780 debate in the House of Lords, for example, Lord Richmond described in order to disarm private citizens who are not militia members as a violation of the constitutional right of Protestant, because it only applied to them in Great Britain at the time, the right of Protestant subjects to keep and bear arms for their own defense. In response, another member of Parliament, this is back in 1780, so after the U.S. has been, or declared itself free, but well before the Constitution was adopted, the other member of Parliament referred to the right of bearing arms for personal defense, making clear that no special military meaning for keep and bear arms was intended in the discussion. And then from an 1876 Supreme Court case, quote, it has always been widely understood that the Second Amendment like the First and Fourth Amendments, codified a pre-existing right. The very text of the Second Amendment implicitly recognizes the pre-existence of the right and declares only that it shall not be infringed. This is not a right granted by the Constitution. Neither is it in any manner dependent upon that instrument, the Constitution, for its existence. The Second Amendment declares that it, the pre-existing right, shall not be infringed. And this is exactly the point I try to make again and again because it is forgotten or completely ignored or never taught. For whatever reason, Americans, far too many of them don't know this. This is a foundational principle of the entire country, yet it is forgotten or just never known. It makes one contemplate whether or not perhaps those in power want it that way. Does it benefit the ruling class? If us mere plebeians like to think that we depend on them for our rights and that we don't have rights just because we're human beings, the truth that we have natural rights because we're born hacks at the foundation of most of statism. And statists, people that control the state, people that have the authority to wield that power of the state, don't want you to know that. All right, back to some British history. The Supreme Court writes, Scalia, between the Restoration and the Glorious Revolution, this is British history, the Stuart Kings Charles II and James II succeeded in using select militias loyal to them to suppress political dissidents, in part by disarming them. That's important. Other history goes on. Similar examples, Scalia says, by the time of the founding of the United States, the right to have arms had become fundamental for English subjects. And that's who our founders were until we started our own country, or they did. Thus, Scalia continues, the right secured in 1689 by the British lords as a result of the Stuarts' abuses, the monarchy, was by the time of the founding of the United States, 
understood to be an individual right protecting against both public and private violence. And of course, when the Stuarts, the monarchs at the time, had tried to do to their political enemies, George III had tried to do to the colonists. Scalia continues, In the tumultuous decades of the 1760s and 1770s, the crown began to disarm the inhabitants of the most rebellious areas. That provoked polemical reactions, polemical reactions by Americans invoking their rights as Englishmen to keep arms. A New York article of April 7, 1769, said that it is a natural right which the people have reserved to themselves, confirmed by the Bill of Rights, that's the British Bill of Rights, to keep arms for their own defense. So the history leading up to the adoption of the Constitution and the Bill of Rights, Bill of Restrictions, backs up the notion that it is an individual right and not a collective one. Scalia discusses what a well-regulated militia is, what it means in the context of the Second Amendment, and he writes that in a 1939 case, we, the Supreme Court, explain that the militia comprised all males physically capable of acting in concert for the common defense. He writes, that definition comports with the founding era sources. And he lists a bunch of those. And one of them is, one of my favorites, is an 1811 letter from Thomas Jefferson, where he writes, the militia of the state, that is to say, of every man in it able to bear arms. So once you understand this, and the dissent pretends not to, they don't like guns, so they ignore it. But once you understand the truth of what the militia is, every man able to bear arms, the individual nature of the right is apparent. It can only be ignored if you purposefully deny the history or just ignore it, right? Then we get to a section labeled in the majority opinion, relationship between the prefatory clause and the operative clause. Scalia writes, we reach the question then, does the preface fit with an operative clause that creates an individual right to keep and bear arms? It fits perfectly once one knows the history that the founding generation knew and that we have described above. He goes on, the debate with respect to the right to keep and bear arms, as with other guarantees in the Bill of Rights, was not over whether it was desirable, because all agreed that it was, but over whether it needed to be codified in the Constitution. And this is where modern progressives say something like, oh, sheesh, we don't need to worry about that today. We don't have to worry about a tyrannical government. Allow me to laugh in Venezuelan. These modern critics of the Second Amendment are so far removed from reality, it's quite remarkable. We've gotten soft and weak and spoiled as a nation. And if the right force comes along, we are ready to fall. So it's important to fight that complacency, that spoiled nature of most modern Americans. And eh, we don't have to worry about it. Trust the government. We're all good. Scalia, for the majority, continues. It is therefore entirely sensible that the Second Amendment's prefatory clause announces the purpose for which the right was codified to prevent elimination of the militia. And the militia is everybody who can wield an arm. The prefatory clause does not suggest that preserving the militia was the only reason Americans valued the ancient right. Most undoubtedly thought it even more important for self-defense and hunting. But the threat that the new federal government would destroy the citizens' militia by taking away their arms was the reason that right, unlike some other English rights, was codified in a written constitution. Okay, so what he's saying is, that prefatory clause explains why it was codified, but doesn't limit the application of the concept. And frankly, that, that prefatory clause about the militia, it's unnecessary. And it's the only thing the anti-gun hysterics, the modern ones, have to base their opposition to firearms on. Then another slap at the dissent when Scalia and the majority write, Justice Stevens, one of the dissenters, flatly misreads the historical record. Well, that's because he, like the other people that don't like the Second Amendment, ignore it. They refuse to acknowledge the actual history because they don't like guns. 
Scalia then goes on into the history, more of the history, and after the Second Amendment was ratified, the Supreme Court notes that, quote, virtually all interpreters of the Second Amendment in the century after its enactment interpreted the amendment as we do. He quotes many commentators from that time period, so 100 years after it was passed, including this one, which I think is noteworthy. Quote, this is a commentator from the time after the Second Amendment was passed. This may be considered as the true palladium of liberty. The right to self-defense is the first law of nature. In most governments, it has been the study of rulers to confine the right within the narrowest limits possible. Wherever standing armies are kept up and the right of the people to keep and bear arms is, under any color or pretext whatsoever, prohibited. Liberty, if not already annihilated, is on the brink of destruction. So that's one commentator. Another one, William Rawl, who was a part of the Pennsylvania General Assembly that ratified the Bill of Rights, wrote years later, The right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. The prohibition is general. No clause in the Constitution could by any rule of construction be conceived to give to Congress a power to disarm the people. Make no mistake, that's exactly what D.C. is trying to do in this case trying to deprive Heller and everybody else from owning a firearm. Rawl continues, Such a flagitious attempt could only be made under some general pretense. So they're making stuff up. They're ignoring what it actually says if they try to infringe upon that right. Now, I quote this part largely because he used the word flagitious, which I had not heard before. (laughs) And it means criminal or villainous, which is an awesome word. The flagitious legislation. And another thing I found interesting was that Scalia quotes the famous abolitionist and anarchist Lysander Spooner in the majority opinion, which I think is cool. I never would have thought that the Supreme Court would ever have quoted Spooner, but Scalia does. He cites Spooner's work, The Unconstitutionality of Slavery, which was written in 1845, where the right to keep and bear arms and describes it as a personal defense. Personal not collective. And I link to Lysander Spooner's work here cited in the notes. So then in pre-Civil War case law, Glee notes the 19th century cases that interpreted the Second Amendment universally support an individual right unconnected to malicious service. Scalia cites a Maryland Supreme Court case from 1843. So again, between the adoption of the Bill of Rights restrictions and the Civil War, Supreme Court of Maryland wrote, Because free blacks were treated as a dangerous population, laws have been passed to prevent their migration into this state, to make it unlawful for them to bear arms, to guard even their religious assemblages with peculiar watchfulness. So it's one of the many examples of the historical racism behind anti-gun laws, now ignored by modern anti-Second Amendment hysterics. And so this Maryland Supreme Court case is talking about the laws attempting to infringe upon freedmen's rights to own a firearm, not their right to be in a militia. It's their individual right. Likewise, in a Georgia Supreme Court case from the same year, 1846, the Georgia Supreme Court wrote, The right of the whole people, old and young, men, women, and boys, and not militia only, to keep and bear arms of every description, and not such merely as are used by the militia, shall not be infringed, curtailed, or broken in upon in the smallest degree. Gotta love that language. Then in post-Civil War legislation, really starts to show the historical racism in the anti-Second Amendment laws. Because after the Civil War and after the 13th Amendment, when slavery was banned, and then after the 14th Amendment, shortly thereafter, former slaves were discriminated against by governments throughout the country. Scalia says, in the aftermath of the Civil War, there was an outpouring of discussion of the Second Amendment in Congress and in public discourse as people debated whether and how to secure constitutional rights for newly free slaves. 
which of course now modern progressives want to take away. One cannot become familiar with the history of gun control in this country and not acknowledge it is predominantly racist. White people in power did not want freed blacks to exercise their individual natural right to arm themselves. They didn't want them to vote either. And for the same reason, racism. The majority Supreme Court goes on in the Heller case. Blacks were routinely disarmed by southern states after the Civil War. Those who opposed these injustices frequently stated that they infringed blacks' constitutional right to keep and bear arms. Needless to say, the claim was not that blacks were being prohibited from carrying arms in an organized state militia. That's the majority opinion. It goes on. A report of the Commission of the Freedman's Bureau in 1866 stated plainly, the civil law of Kentucky prohibits the colored man from bearing arms. Their arms are taken from them by the civil authorities, the government. Thus, the right of the people to keep and bear arms as provided in the Constitution is infringed. Again, the right of the freedmen to keep and bear arms is infringed, not the right to join the militia and have a gun. An 1866 congressional report noted, quote, In some parts of South Carolina, armed parties are, without proper authority, engaged in seizing all firearms found in the hands of the freemen. Such conduct is in plain and direct violation of their personal rights, not collective rights, as guaranteed by the Constitution of the United States, which declares that the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Supreme Court continues along that same vein. The view expressed in these statements was widely reported and was apparently widely held. For example, an editorial in the Loyal Georgian, it's an Augusta newspaper, on February 3rd, 1866, assured blacks that, quote, all men, without distinction of color, have the right to keep and bear arms to defend their homes, families, or themselves. One has to intentionally ignore the history to say that the Second Amendment does not grant an individual right. And by way of historical context on these dates, the Civil War ended in on April 9th of 1865, Less than a year, the 13th Amendment banning slavery passed in December of 1865, so less than half a year after this newspaper account. And then two years later was the adoption of the 14th Amendment in 1868. The Freedmen's Bureau Act of 1866 stated, and this is in the Supreme Court written, opinion written by Scalia, the right to have full and equal benefit of all laws and proceedings concerning personal liberty, personal security, and the acquisition enjoyment, and disposition of a state, real and personal, including the constitutional right to bear arms, shall be secured to and enjoyed by all the citizens without respect to race or color or previous condition of slavery. So again, the notion that modern anti-Second Amendment policies and arguments that are based on the militia clause are either ignorantly uninformed are being intentionally obtuse. And what they're really saying is, I don't like guns, therefore how can I restrict them? How can I twist the actual history and use this prefatory clause that mentions the militia to completely ignore the actual rest important part of it that says the right of the people shall not be infringed? And make no mistake, every common sense regulation is a ban. It's a ban of some kind. If the regulation is no one under 21 can purchase a firearm, that's a ban on people under 21 buying firearms. If the common sense regulation is no one can own a magazine beyond a certain capacity, that is a ban on magazines beyond a certain capacity. If somebody just wants common sense regulation requiring background checks before a grandfather can give his granddaughter a family rifle, that is a ban on grandfathers giving their granddaughters a family 
rifle without a background check. You name the regulation, it is a ban on something. And this applies in every context. Don't let people get away with calling something a mere regulation because mere regulations are bans on something. And there's a great pro-Second Amendment group here in Colorado called Rally for Our Rights. Some of their opposition that shows up regularly is honest. They at least let everyone know that they want to end the Second Amendment. One guy wears a shirt that says F the Second Amendment. So at least these people are honest. So good for them on their honesty. It's the dishonest people that try to intentionally misread history and misread the English language. And if you're not familiar with Maj Turi, you should be. That's M-A-J for Maj Turi, T-O-U-R-E. Google him. He's a black man. He's a libertarian. He's running for city council in Philadelphia. He grew up there and he understands the racism inherent in gun control laws. He talks about it routinely. He understands that every new gun law will be disproportionately enforced against black men. That's a fact. Progressives acknowledge that this is true in every other criminal law, and yet the same principle applies to gun laws. If you haven't read Michelle Alexander's book, The New Jim Crow, read it. It talks about how laws disproportionately affect people of color, and if you have a felony, it takes away your right to vote. Progressive Yale law professor Stephen Carter has pointed out that every law is enforceable by the punishment of death. So every new gun law is another reason for a black man to die at the hands of law enforcement. For mere possession of a gun, not for robbery or assault or anything violent, for mere possession of an object that is his natural right, protected by the Constitution. And as Majdari points out, people like Kamala Harris and Cory Booker are calling for more anti-gun policies and laws that will disproportionately affect African Americans, especially males. That'll affect everybody, don't get me wrong, but black folks at a higher rate. Back to the majority opinion, Scalia quotes an 1880 treatise which says, The right to bear arms has always been the distinctive privilege of free men. Aside from any necessity of self-protection to the person, it represents among all nations power coupled with the exercise of a certain jurisdiction. It was not necessary that the right to bear arms should be granted in the Constitution, for it had always existed. Amen. As we know, Constitution doesn't grant rights. It limits government. The Bill of Rights is really a bill of restrictions. Congress shall make no law is a restriction. A right shall not be infringed is a restriction. It's not a right. So join me in my cause to refer to the Bill of Rights as the Bill of Restrictions and explain it so people know what you're talking about. Another Supreme Court case is cited. That opinion, Scalia says, explain that the right is not a right granted by the Constitution or in any manner dependent upon that instrument, the Constitution, for its existence. He goes on, it is demonstrably not true that, as Justice Stevens claims in his dissent, for most of our history, the invalidity of Second Amendment-based objections to firearms regulations has been well settled and uncontroversial. Scalia says that's not true. It's demonstrably not true because most of our history, the question did not present itself. So Stephen's trying to create precedent where none exists. That brings me back to the current discussion of precedent, which is out there because progressives right now are demanding that Roe versus Wade be protected. And maybe it should be, but they're jumping up and down about how precedent is important and precedent is sacrosanct. So Roe must be upheld even if the majority of Supreme Court justices think it was wrongly decided. Then many of these same progressives then demand that Citizens United be overturned. So I guess precedent only matters when they like it. 
Consistency is such a bitch, isn't she? Now, Scalia does mention the limits of the Second Amendment. He says, like most rights, the right secured by the Second Amendment is not unlimited. Although we do not undertake an exhaustive historical analysis today of the full scope of the Second Amendment, nothing in our opinion should be taken to cast doubt on long-standing prohibitions on the possession of firearms by felons and the mentally ill, or laws forbidding the carrying of firearms in sensitive places such as schools and government buildings, remember this is Scalia in the majority opinion, or laws imposing conditions and qualifications on the commercial sale of arms. So there's the limits laid out by the majority opinion written by Scalia. So, the Supreme Court, Scalia, say laws can infringe on such ownership or sale, etc., etc. It doesn't say such bans are good policy, of course. So he mentioned Breyer's dissent and Breyer's call for an interest-balanced answer. Scalia writes about that. We know of no other enumerated constitutional right whose core protection has been subjected to a freestanding interest-balancing approach. The very enumeration of the right takes out of the hands of government, even the third branch of government, the judiciary, the power to decide on a case-by-case basis whether the right is really worth insisting upon. A constitutional guarantee subject to future judges' assessments of its usefulness is no constitutional guarantee at all. Amen, I made this point before when discussing different balancing tests and different levels of scrutiny the Supreme Court has completely made up out of the either. The analysis should be, does this law infringe upon our right? If so, it must be struck down. The end. No balancing of competing interests. As Scalia is saying here, if you're going to balance the competing interests and judges are going to decide if that right is important enough to be enforced or if the government has a sufficient reason to overcome it, that completely destroys the right being protected. If the government has a good enough reason to violate your rights, apparently according to Breyer, then it's cool. It's not cool and Scalia is correct here. So the last paragraph of Scalia's majority opinion is great. So here it goes. We are aware of the problem of handgun violence in this country, and we take seriously the concerns raised by the many Amici, the friends of the court, who believe that prohibition of handgun ownership is a solution. The Constitution leaves the District of Columbia a variety of tools for combating that problem, including some measures regulating handguns. But the enshrinement of constitutional rights necessarily takes certain policy choices off the table. These include the absolute prohibition of handguns held and used for self-defense in the home. Undoubtedly, some think that the Second Amendment is outmoded in a society where our standing army is the pride of our nation, where well-trained police forces provide personal security, ha, and where gun violence is a serious problem. That's perhaps debatable, but what is not debatable is that it is not the role of this court to pronounce the Second Amendment extinct. Amen. There you have it. So, as we went over, the Second Amendment, right to keep and bear arms, is an individual right, does not depend upon membership in a militia or some government-controlled force. Next week, we'll discuss the McDonald versus the City of Chicago case, the case that applied that right, that personal individual right to keep and bear arms, and applied it to the states via the 14th Amendment Incorporation Doctrine. So, stay tuned for that. I'm D.K. Williams, and this has been The Law. Episode 36, where we discuss District of Columbia versus Heller. We're brought to you by the Launchpad Media Network, always launching ideas in your direction. Find us at thelaunchpadmedia.com. Tell me what you like about these podcasts. If anything, tell me what you don't like if there's something. You can hit me up at Twitter at Blue Carp. Again, the Facebook page for the podcast is The Law with DK Williams. And if you'd like to help keep this podcast going, donate at paypal.me slash the law dk williams and that link is in the notes so until next week government is not a tool of liberation it is a tool of oppression live free